Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to Voices of Africa. My name is Ngozi Chukura and I'm the marketing content lead at Africa Practice. And today we have changed the dynamic a little bit and we are interviewing founder and CEO of Africa Practice, Marcus Courage. Thank you so much for joining us, Marcus. Ngozi, it's my pleasure. Um, oh, I'd be lying if I told you it was my pleasure. I'm not so comfortable with the tables being turned and the roles reversed. But um, yes, I'm happy to be speaking to you today. Thank you so much for making the time. I know that Marcus doesn't often like to talk about himself. I know he much rather prefers talking about his work and the work that we do at Africa Practice and the, on the continent. But I will start with a short introduction uh, about Marcus's background. Marcus has been the visionary leader of, Mar of Africa Practice for 20 years, and he has many, many years of experience supporting African nations to attract investment and pursue preferential trade relationships. He has supplied strategic communications, advocacy, and public diplomacy services to multilateral agencies and a dozen African governments, as well as many of some of the largest private sector investors in Africa. He also leads a really dynamic and diverse team at Africa Practice to do the same thing, where we advise investors and development partners across the continent, all in the interests of shaping a prosperous Africa. We just came out of celebrating 20 years of Africa Practice, Marcus, last year, where we had a really great opportunity to reflect on our growth as Africa Practice, the growth and developments that have taken place on the continent, and the impact that we've been able to have with our work supporting our partners. And we're really, really grateful to have this opportunity to speak to you now about the next 20 years. So yeah, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today on the other end of the table. On the other end. Thanks, Ngozi. Marcus, we'll dive right in. 20 years ago, ideas about Africa were vastly different from what they are now. How did it occur to you to even begin Africa practice? What were you thinking? What was your vision for yourself, for your career? And who was the first person that you told when you made the decision to build this kind of business in Africa? And what was their response? Well, thank you, Ngozi. I concede that there was no one single moment that um, d determined the, uh, the establishment of Africa practice. It was a journey, really, a journey um, through school, through university, um, to my first job, um, to my second job, and then um, to having the, the, the courage to found a, a startup, a startup in a basement, as we were then, two of us on the first day, three of us quite quickly in a basement in London. Quite soon after that, we established an office in Lagos and then Nairobi. I moved down to Johannesburg and lived there. And as you rightly point out, it's, it's 21 years this year. And we've been steadily and progressively building our business over that period of time. I had originally intended to pursue a career either as a politician or a diplomat. And I met with a few MPs in the British Parliament um, when I was considering my career choices. 
And they each told me, go get a job and then come back if you're still interested in politics. So I applied then to what was the leading public affairs firm in the UK, in Westminster, and got an internship there. I was fortunate enough to have a very inspirational, chain-smoking Egyptian woman as my boss, who quite quickly became my mentor and who was genuinely a, a great inspiration to me. She had spent her youth supporting liberation movements in Africa. And she opened my eyes to the continent and in particular to the biases and prejudices that exist in the world, and particularly in relation to what was then very pronounced misrepresentation of Africa in the West. So she gave me a lens, really, through which to view the world and in particular to view Africa. I should say that I had had exposure already as a young person. My father lived in South Africa while I was growing up and I had traveled to West Africa with my mum. And I fell in love with the continent at a young age. But the decision to actually set up Africa practice was motivated by my desire to focus exclusively on working in Africa and with African institutions and with investors with portfolios in Africa. And it was driven by a motive to try and encourage and promote more collaboration between industry and governments, more collaboration between industry, governments and CSOs, and to try to deliver more economic growth on the continent. At that time, Africa was receiving paltry flows of foreign direct investment capital. And it seemed to me pretty damn obvious that the abundant opportunities within the continent meant that Africa's share of FDI and private capital had a lot of room for growth. And I had, at that stage, developed many of the skills to attract um, investment into emerging markets specifically. Uh, but in the final analysis, the decision to established Africa practice was, I suppose, very much mission-driven to shape a prosperous Africa and, frankly, born of a desire to work with like-minded people who shared the same worldview as me. Thank you so much for that, Marcus. Very interesting journey there. Very interesting uh, set of points for growth particularly when you spoke about shifting the lens through which you viewed the continent. It resonated because perennially for many years, people have often spoken about this kind of buzz phrase, Africa rising, and it has taken various forms throughout the years and it's reared its head again in 2024. And economists and experts from various fields have spoken about their optimism when it comes to Africa's growth potential in coming years. We've got a young and very quickly urbanizing workforce that's projected to increase by 740 million by 2050, which actually isn't very far away from now. We have a wealth of natural resources. We have a mobile phone penetration that's very quickly going to surpass 50%. And we also have intergovernmental collaborations and initiatives like the African Continental Free Trade Area. And so all indications point to the continent's growth potential. I'd like us to cast our vision forward. And I'd like to ask in your view, where do you think the growth in Africa will come from? And what challenges do you think we'll need to overcome in order to achieve that growth? 
Well, you've painted a bright picture of Africa's growth potential, and I think that's absolutely right. By the same token, I think we need to be realistic about the challenges that we face in 2024, and not just in Africa, but globally, we're facing myriad challenges, whether it's rising populism, escalating conflicts, sluggish global trade, persistently high interest rates, heightened geopolitical risk, and increasing climate disasters. So those really are wicked challenges that we face um, uh, globally. Um, In Africa, we have the additional challenge of very high levels of debt. So these are not insignificant challenges. But I remain optimistic, and I think there are very good reasons to be positive about Africa's growth prospects and the near-term and long-term outlook for the continent. Why? First and foremost, I think we need to recognize that the most important um, driver for all economic activity, um, and indeed for all humanity today and for the foreseeable future, is the need to cool our warming planet, and therefore the race to accelerate decarbonization worldwide. This presents manifold opportunities for African nations and indeed for African industries. The continent has abundant natural resources, both um, renewable and non-renewable. The quality of our renewable energy potential, whether it's solar, hydro, geothermal or wind, is outstanding in many countries on the continent. And it's that quality that enables African producers of renewable energy to produce power more cheaply than we can in other regions of the world. It's that competitiveness that should make the continent increasingly attractive to companies who would want to manufacture close to the source of that energy. And um, the way that global supply chains work is that you can cut out a considerable amount of the costs if you are able to locate your manufacturing close to the source of the power. So that obviously represents a huge opportunity for Africa to become uh, a manufacturing hub. At present, we have a situation in which most of Africa's abundant raw materials, predominantly uh, minerals, but also hydrocarbons, are exported to the rest of the world with little or no added value, which means that we are exporting and then re-importing finished goods at a much more considerable uh, price, um, which is, of course, very expensive and, frankly, inadequate to sustain the economic growth requirements that we have as a continent with our burgeoning demographics. We have, as you pointed out in your preamble there, one of the fastest growing populations in the world. By 2050, one in four people on the planet will be African, and that's what the current projections show us. And so we've got to be growing our economies at a faster pace than we have um, hitherto. In looking forward at Africa's potential, I did want to just spend a moment also reflecting on the past. I've obviously been in this role now for for over 20 years, and I've had the privilege of traveling all across the continent. And it's often easy to forget just how far and fast we've come as a continent in the last 20 years, with significant improvements to um, health on the continent, with significant improvements to digital penetration in the way that you 
reflected with significant improvements to governance indicators as well. Um, so there are a lot of um, amazing things that have happened on the continent over the past 20 years. I expect the pace of transformation to far surpass um, what we have seen over the last 20 years. So I think we can expect accelerated growth in the continent over the next five to 10 years, but it won't be universal. And the key determinant between who will be the winners will be the quality of policymaking, the soundness of the regulatory environment. There is no shortage of global capital looking for growth markets, but global capital needs policy coherence and consistency. And so it behoves African leaders to establish clear policy and a coherent regulatory environment that can attract the sums of private capital that is needed by, let's face it, many quite heavily indebted um, countries to um, stimulate economic activity and to drive uh, climate positive growth on the continent. And so that's very much our role at Africa Practice, sitting as we do at the intersection of markets and the state, helping policymakers, uh, investors and regulators to shape a policy and regulatory environment that is conducive to growing inclusive markets that, that satisfy not only shareholders, but the stakeholders that they serve in those countries. Thank you so much for that detailed response, Marcus. It's really great to hear your thoughts about the ways in which we've grown and how far we've come as a continent, and also all the ways in which Africa can continue that growth trajectory into the future. You spoke of the opportunity for African nations, particularly if we get the policy environment right, if we get the will of governments and leadership on sides particularly in the areas of renewable energy, you have built a business that spends a great deal of time helping investors, foundations, and governments with an interest in Africa to understand the continent. Now, despite this, and despite all the positivity and the potential that the continent has, we definitely tend to still have a trust and reputational problem on the continent, which has a negative impact on investments, and it has done in the past. I don't want us to delve too much into these negative stereotypes, but in your view, what do you think the world gets so wrong about Africa? And what do you think our responsibility is in setting the story straight? Thank you for that question. I think um, you'll be pleased to know that the situation has improved um, quite significantly, I think, over the last 20 years since we founded Africa Practice. The continent is certainly better understood today than it was 20 years ago. And I think that that is as a result of many things and many contributions um, from many quarters. If I reflect back 20 years when we founded Africa Practice, the continent received negligible global media coverage, particularly in relation to economics and business. We've come a long way since then. Uh, big broadcasters like CNN, Al Jazeera, CNBC, all have dedicated programming focused on Africa. So it's certainly a much improved picture and there's a much better understanding globally. 
of the continent. Nonetheless, the overwhelming perception of Africa is as a continent of poverty, of famine, of conflict and of poor governance. And that's still a challenge to overcome. We know that the cost of capital for projects on the continent, particularly long-term infrastructure projects, is higher than in other regions of the world as a consequence of perception of risk. And so it is a really important subject and it's one that uh, we remain um, committed to supporting and to helping shape a progressive, modern, dynamic image of the continent that reflects the reality on the ground. And that reality is, as I alluded to, there's so much dynamism happening, particularly in the private sector. We have really strong and effective civil society organizations on the continent, largely born of necessity, but um, CSOs are filling the gap and doing amazing work in helping to deliver goods and services to the underserved on the continent. The other thing that I'd like to point out is that I think that for the most part, the world doesn't have an appreciation of just how rich the continent of Africa is. What do I mean by that? Well, it's one of the most nature-rich regions on Earth. It hosts a quarter of global biodiversity. So Africa is genuinely a natural capital superpower. And to the point I made earlier about the wealth of natural resources on the continent, I referred earlier to renewable energy potential. But I might easily also have referred to the value of Africans' carbon sinks, which sequester um, huge amounts of carbon from the air. So humanity is very much dependent on Africa's natural capital and those carbon sinks specifically, extending to minerals for the energy transition. And Africa has an abundance of these mineral reserves. And when you combine that with its demographic strengths, you can see the combination of natural capital and human capital make this continent a very rich continent. Now, that is not to in any way efface the deep levels of poverty that exist on the continent. But to the point that you make, the potential is enormous. And the opportunity to unlock that potential to improve lives is our mission. That's our mission, to shape a prosperous Africa, and it keeps us invested and busy every day. Thank you so much for that, Marcus. It really has been an enlightening conversation. I hadn't planned on asking you this, Marcus, yeah. but I think it would be remiss of me not to, because traditionally we ask our guests what they are reading or in the age of podcasts, what they are listening to. So I would like you on the other side of the table today to please do the same. Thanks, Ngozi. I can see the tables have been turned. So at the moment, I'm reading a book entitled The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio, who is the founder of Bridgewater. I'm only just into the book, but I celebrated a, a milestone birthday just a couple of weeks ago, and someone was kind enough to give me some book vouchers. In this part of the world, you know, books are very expensive. So I went out and treated myself with that book in hardback. It is a book that covers patterns that Ray Dalio has observed over 500 years of history, social, political, economic and environmental drivers that cause geopolitics and geoeconomics to change and that shape the wealth and prosperity of nations. So he's done an exercise to look back over 500 years at the relative rise and fall of empires and nations. And yeah, it's a subject matter that, that interests me. And so I'm just getting stuck into that book now. And I'm hoping it's going to teach me not just about empires from East and West, but also it might, I hope, touch on empires in Africa as well. Often overlooked, we were referring earlier to, to culture and history. 
often overlooked is the fact that we've had very strong empires and thriving regions that have existed in Africa's history. I'm thinking specifically of the Mali Empire from the mid-1200s to the early 1600s. Most famous ruler, perhaps Mansa Musa, but it, it was a significant trading empire and it really influenced culture of the entire region, which it spread through languages, laws and customs. I don't know if he, he touches on Africa, but I'll be able to tell you when I finish the book. Podcasts. So I am a, a big podcast fan and I listen to a range of podcasts. I am a listener of The Economist's podcast, The Intelligence from The Economist, which is very well produced and I enjoy. And also of another podcast called The Money Maze, which is interviews and conversations with leaders in the world of finance and investing. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Marcus. It was great um, having this conversation with you today. Thank you, Ngozi. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to your weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.